We have a different kind of bone and sickle episode this time out, as uh, Mrs. Carswell and I have been particularly busy with bee circus preparations and certain seasonal duties. We don't have a regular episode prepared, but we'll be offering a sample of the short bonus episodes heard by our Patreon subscribers at the uh, $4 and up monthly rate. It's one from a few months ago, and there are 12 or 13 others uh, available for those who subscribe. We'll be back in October with a sort of a ghost episode and a special Halloween offering later in the month. Until then, we hope you enjoy this, and thanks for listening. Welcome to our seventh episode of Marvelous and Rare Antiquarian Circle. We offer this show exclusively to Patreon subscribers as a thank you for the support that makes Bone and Sickle possible. These uh, short episodes consist exclusively of readings from rare books from the shelves of our library here. We'll be continuing on with passages from our uh, 1825 volume, The Terrific Register, or Record of Crimes, Judgments, Providences, and Calamities. Calamities. I hope you find it entertaining. Our first here. Wonderful Providence. The following singular account is related by Tonu in his uh, History of the Civil Wars of France. When the Catholics besieged Rouen in the year 1562, a period of time rendered remarkable on accounts of the civil wars which originated from religious disputes, Francis Seville, a gentleman of the Calvinist party, received a wound which made him fall senseless from the ramparts into the town. Some soldiers who believed him dead stripped and buried him with the negligence usual on such occasions. An affectionate servant, whom he had retained in his service, desirous of giving his master a more honorable burial, went with a design to find his remains. His search being fruitless among so many dead bodies, he covered them again with earth, so that the hand of one of them remained uncovered. As he was retiring, he happened to look behind him and perceived the hand, and fearing that object might incite the dogs to unearth the body to devour it, he returned in order to cover it, when the light of the moon, just emerging from a cloud, discovered to him a diamond ring on the finger, which he knew to be Seville's. Without delay, he took up his master, who had still breath in him, and carried him to the hospital of the wounded. But the surgeons, being fatigued with labor and considering him as on the point of death, took no trouble about his wounds. The servant found himself obliged to take him to his own house, where he laid for four days without any help. At the end of that time, two physicians visited him, and by their care and attention he was placed in a fair way to recovery. The town then being taken by assault, the conquerors had the barbarity to throw him out the window. He fortunately fell on a heap of dung, where, abandoned by everyone, he lay three more days in the most miserable condition. Ducoisset, his relation, had him carried off in the middle of the night and sent to a house in the country where his wounds were dressed and he completely recovered. 
Seville lived 40 years after this event in perfect health. That particular providence which had saved this man from so many perils had also presided over his birth. His mother, dying with child in the absence of his father, had been buried without any thinking of extracting the infant by the cesarean operation. The day after she was interred, the husband arrived and learned with the greatest surprise and sorrow of the death of his wife and the little attention that had been paid to the fruit of her womb. He had her immediately dug up, opened, and extracted Seville, still living. Charmed life. Let's see. Uh, this is uh, now we. The, the next one I have is a uh, a less charmed life. Let's see. A dream fatally fulfilled. A man dreaming that he was torn to pieces by a lion and looking upon the dream merely as a chimera resulting from the confused and disturbed actions of mind and body when fancy predominates, slighted it. And the next day, seeing the figure of a lion cut in stone supported by pillars, he told those who were walking with him what he had dreamed the night before, and merrily thrust his hand into the lion's jaw, saying, Now bite me if thou canst. He had no sooner spoken the words, but a scorpion which had taken up its lodging in the lion's mouth, stung him on the hand, resulting in a poisoned wound that resisted all applications and proved to be his death. John and Robert Green, The Wandering Minstrels These pedestrians form a singular sight, Twins in birth and partners in the misfortunes of life, they came into the world blind, and the blind are compelled to wade their way through the world of difficulties and troubles. Though nothing very remarkable can be recorded of them, yet there is something in their looks and manners that at least renders them conspicuous characters. They are continually moving from village to village, from town to town, and from city to city, never omitting to call upon London, whether outward or homeward bound. It is observable, however, that they never play but one two, which may account for their not stopping any length of time in one place. For upwards of twenty years they have always been seen together. John and Robert Green are visitors at most country fairs, particularly at the annual statute fair held at Chipping Norton, which they never fail to attend. And at this place, it appears, they were born. When in London, they are always noticed with a guide, and as soon as the old harmony is finished, one takes hold of the skirt of the other's coat, and in that manner proceed until they again strike up the regular tune. We are inclined to think the charity bestowed upon them is not given as a retaining fee, but rather to get rid of a dissonance and a discord, which, from continued repetition, becomes exceedingly disagreeable, though in this manner they pick up a decent subsistence. A Horrible Death The gates of all towns and cities of Persia are shut a little after sunset and reopened at sunrise. Strict adherence to this injunctive and carelessness or unavoidable delays on the part of the traveler often subject them to the inconvenience of reaching the gates when they are closed. 
Hence, they must stay without till morning. And during the inclement season, at opening the gates, a terrible scene of death sometimes presents itself close to the threshold, old and young, animals and children, lying in one lifeless heap. Some years ago, a solitary traveler, who had performed a long journey on his own horse, arrived at Tabriz when entrance was already barred. That night, to save himself from the fatal effects he so surely anticipated, he pierced his faithful horse with his dagger, and ripping up the body, thus thrust himself into it, in the vain hope of the warmth which might remain, preserving his own vital heat until the morning. But at dawn, when the gates were opened, he was frozen to death in this horrible shroud. A Desperate Suicide A young man, a resident of Lyon, handsome, well-made, of an amiable disposition, and very accomplished, fell in love with a young woman whose parents refused their consent to his proposal of marriage. The lover, in an agonizing fit, broke a blood vessel, and it was declared by a surgeon there was no remedy to stop the bleeding. His mistress found the means of getting an interview with her lover and presented him with a brace of pistols and two daggers that in case the former should fail, the latter might certainly dispatch them. They embraced each other tenderly for the last time. The triggers of both the pistols were fastened to rose-colored ribbons. The lover took hold of the ribbon of that pistol which was designated to dispatch his mistress. She held that design for her lover at a signal agreed upon, they both fired at the same time and both instantly <laughs> fell down dead. And uh, now we have the lunatics. The following horrible occurrence took place in France a few years since at the House of Refuge for Lunatics, established at Charité sur Loire. A Monsieur Mangue, an apothecary of Saint-Cyr, and Monsieur Puscrian, a mason of Le Cri de Bourg, had been placed in the house as insane patients. Among other proofs of madness, Mangue continually manifested a strong dislike of life and endeavored to prevail on the different inmates of the house to murder him. Unfortunately, the proposal was made to Puscrian, who willingly undertook to perpetuate the horrid act. The two lunatics immediately descended the staircase leading to the kitchen, where they found a wooden block. Manga suddenly stopped, coolly took off his coat and cravat, turned down his shirt collar, and laid his head on the block. They now wanted an instrument, and Manga pointed to the kitchen chopper. Puscrian ran to fetch it, returned, and finding his companion still in the same attitude, beheaded him with a single stroke, without anyone having heard or observed the preparations for this horrible execution. The event was, however, soon discovered by the loud, fiendish laughter of the maniac, and by the bloody stains with which he was covered. On being questioned, he confessed without the least emotion that he had yielded to the repeated entreaties of Manga that the latter had bequeathed to him a valuable document, uh, which on being produced proved to be merely a piece of waste paper, and that he would perform the same office to anyone who asked him politely. 
the maniac was afterwards ordered into solitary confinement and in a short time also died. Oh, that's nice. Uh, uh, something else. I guess it's a bit morbid again. Uh, uh, fatal Conceit. Marcus Donatus, in his On Anomalies in the History of Medicine, records the case of a person by the name of Vincentinus who suffered under the delusion that he was of such enormous size that he could not go through the door of his apartment. His physician gave orders that he should be forcibly led through it, which was done accordingly, but not without fatal effect, for Vincentinus cried out as he was forced along that the flesh was torn from his bones and that his limbs were broken off, of which terrible impressions he died a few days after, accusing those who had conducted him of being his murderers. Oh, so much for trying to help someone, I guess. Uh, let's see. This is a bit cheerier. Okay, we've got the next one, I think. Singular Recovery from Apparent Death A very singular adventure happened to David Beck, the painter, as he traveled through Germany. He was suddenly and violently taken ill at an inn where he lodged, and was laid out as a corpse, seeming to all appearances quite dead. His valets expressed the strongest marks of grief at the loss of their master, and while they sat by the side of his bed, they drank very freely by way of consolation. At least one of them, who grew much intoxicated, said to his companion, Our master was fond of his glass while alive, and, out of gratitude, let us give him a glass now he is dead. As the rest of the servants assented to this proposal, he raised up the head of his master and endeavored to pour some of the liquor into his mouth. By the fragrance of the wine, or probably by the small quantity that imperceptibly got down his throat, Bake opened his eyes, and the serpents being excessively drunk, and forgetting that his master was considered as dead, compelled him to swallow what wine remained in the glass. The painter gradually revived, and, by proper management and care, recovered perfectly, and escaped an internment. Well, that was a cheerier one, I guess. Oh, this one's uh, rather heartening also. Let's see. Gratitude of an Elephant The following curious fact is given on the authority of the French naturalist Buffon, a soldier at Pondicherry who was accustomed whenever he received his dinner ration to carry a certain quantity of it to an elephant, having one day drunk rather too freely, and finding himself pursued by the guards who were going to take him to prison, took refuge under the elephant's body and fell asleep. In vain did the guard try to force him from his asylum, the elephant protected him with his trunk. The next morning, the soldier, recovering from his drunken fit, shuddered with horror to find himself stretched under the belly of this huge animal. The elephant, which, without doubt, perceived the embarrassment of the poor fellow, caressed him with his trunk in order to dissipate his fears and make him understand that he might now depart in safety. Act of kindness. Okay. Uh, I think this will be our last one here. Wanton cruelty. The Duke de Lausanne passed the long interval from the year 1672 to 1681 in the prison of Pignerol. It has been well observed by Stern that with pen, ink, and paper, albeit a man cannot get out of prison, he may do very well within, and at last come out a wiser man than he entered. But these consolations did 
not fall to the lot of the Duke. At a distance from the voice of friend or relation, without any sounds except his own sighs, without any light except the glimmerings through the roof, without books, means of occupation, or possibility of exercise, a prey to hope deferred, corroding languor and uninterrupted horror, he at last, as the only means of preserving himself from insanity, had recourse to the expedient of taming a spider. Misery, says Trinculo, makes a man acquainted with strange companions. And so we have it. The spider received his flies every morning with gratitude, carried on his webs through the day with alacrity, and engaged the whole attention of his benefactor. Until the jailer, conversant in scenes of wretchedness and consequently steeled against every tender sensation, accidentally discovered this amusement of his prisoner, and, in the wantonness of his tyranny, officiously destroyed the subject of it. Donazon afterward declared that he had conceived his agony on this occasion to have been more painful than that of a fond mother on the loss of a darling child. Poor spider. Poor duke. And with that, we'll switch from books to recordings to close out our show. Uh, a bit of music from our collections. This one might make you recall the flies the uh, previously mentioned spider was so fond of. It's a uh, delightfully nonsensical number from 1933 sung by the uh, British comedian and actor Bobby Comer called The Flies Crawled Up the Window. They do. 
crawl up windows, then how can they see through? But every fly by nature is modest and refined. So when it is your bath night, do please pull down the blind. Anyway, that's what the flyer said. Uh, what? Wait and see. Wait and see? Ah, yes, well, perhaps you're right. Well, now I'll give you your last chance. What did Nelson say at the Battle of Trafalgar? England expects that every man this day will do his duty. Go to the bottom of the class, sir. What Nelson said was, the flies crawl up the window, and yet the fact remains. You'll often meet with people who say flies have no brains. Next time you see flies crawling upside down on the shelf, if you don't think that's clever, well, just try it for yourself. Well, now let us conclude with the flycatcher's national anthem. The flies crawl up the window, it's all they have to do.